the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ever pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning. And I thank you, Dr. Joe, for that beautiful improvisation that is uh, so timely for my next words. Because if you grew up in this church, or you grew up as a child in any Episcopal Sunday school, you might be familiar with the little melody that you just heard. And for this, I apologize, trying to do it as an adult. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed way up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I'll stop it, but you get the idea. (laughs) As the Savior passed by that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. I know that I am incredibly familiar with that uh, beautiful song, and I can almost hear it wafting over from the chapel just over there. In fact, as I was preparing for this morning, I was taken back in time to a wonderful and warm memory from the days when our little Carter had to have been around five or six-ish, and Isabel would have been about three or four-ish. Christina and I had been volunteers for uh, Children's Chapel that Sunday morning, not to teach, but we were there to serve more as cattle rustlers or cat herders. Those were fun times, though, singing and sitting on the floor during the lesson, having the children crawl all over us like we were trees, while another parent bravely led the lesson. Later on that morning, we were on our way home with Carter and Isabel merrily singing in the back. When the singing stopped, and Carter and Isabel began to have a very spirited discussion, Isabel What's supposed to be so bad about Zacchaeus? Carter, ha, don't you understand anything? He's a tax collector. (laughs) Isabel, I don't even know what that means. Carter, Isabel, it's simple. It means he collects the tax. (laughs) Carter, uh, excuse me, Isabel, yelling back to Carter at this point, I don't even know what that is. I, hearing the elevated voices and recognizing that parental enforcement would soon be required, I was contemplating a response with which to intercede while trying to think about how to describe to a four-year-old that a tax collector was a fellow Jew who made himself rich through the extortion of his own people by an oppressive ruling empire. Remember, Zacchaeus even describes his own wickedness to Jesus as defrauding others. I look over, and Christina's just nodding her head like, please don't try to take the to Divinity School this morning. And in that pause, I heard Isabel ponder aloud to herself, what is so bad about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is a wee little man, and I know that means short, and I'm short. Tax collector, Ugh, what does that even mean? Talk about going from zero to 100% parental anxiety and how to respond. In this moment, in one sense, I was thinking, wow, Isabel really was paying attention to the lesson beyond the song. And also sensing that Isabel was working her way to connect the dots 
where I wasn't exactly sure where she was going, because remember, this was in the context of what had now boiled into a full-fledged sibling argument. So I found myself having to take a deep dive into my, at the time, very shallow well of parental wisdom to interject quickly and in a positive way. Full disclosure, I'm not saying that this was a good or a best or a correct response. I humbly admit this is just what came out of my mouth next. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And that we merrily sang all the way home until everybody bounced out of their car seats. So to Ellen Carter, who hopefully are connected to us via cyberspace, my response might be two decades removed from the question. And my response might not be today so good for a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So thank God they're over there. But here we are. And let me pause for a moment in thanksgiving for the ministry of our former and current directors of, current, of uh, Christian formation. May God Almighty bless Gretchen Jordan and Boykin Bell for placing the building blocks of how not to be judgmental before our children. Amen. Indeed, what's so bad about Zacchaeus? In the end, I don't think that matters because this story isn't really about Zacchaeus. I apologize if that's me. Uh, I don't think this story is as much about Zacchaeus as much as it is about the power of God. Let us recall that so many of... This isn't one that they teach us in Deacon Formation School. (laughs) Again, I don't think that this is a story that's really about Zacchaeus as much as it is about the power of God. Let us recall that many of Jesus' stories and parables describe an ending where the culmination is in a party or a banquet or, at the very minimum, a meal. The wedding at Cana, the prodigal son... Zacchaeus going to a celebration with Jesus. The stories don't generally end with judgment and persecution or exclusion. They end with celebration and inclusion, which we should take to heart given our human, our very human propensity to judge. You're either with me or against me. Let's say we're above that. You agree with me or you disagree with me, in which case maybe you might not have as informed an opinion. People can make mistakes, we often do, and others can be quick to judge. We should all be mindful for just how easy it is to fall into the judgment zone, which, by the way, Jesus never, never, ever teaches us to do. And it is not the way to follow Jesus of Nazareth. 
the way of living with our hearts filled and guided by loving our God and our neighbors as ourselves. But nonetheless, there are stark contemporary examples of the judgmental behavior of us versus them, and they can be destructive. You might have seen Bishop Curry's comments this week when he served on a panel at Georgetown University exploring external threats to democracy disguised as religion. He, in particular, was describing the rise of Christian nationalism, or what is being increasingly referred to as white Christian nationalism, which, by the way, is actually anti-Christian. It is anything but loving thy neighbor as thyself. And let me be clear, I'm not being political, okay? Believe it or not, you can have the love of Jesus that fills your heart, and you can be a Republican. You can have Jesus in your heart, and you can be a Democrat. You can have Jesus in your heart and be conservative. You can have Jesus in your heart, and you can be liberal. All while loving thy neighbor as thyself. But remember, loving my neighbor as myself means, among other things, my neighbor should have the same safety and security that I do. Loving my neighbor as myself means my neighbor should have the same rights that I do, particularly of our black and brown neighbors, particularly in neighborhoods of poverty. White Christian nationalism is an ideology that invokes the language and symbols of religion that have religious traction but is not a religion at all. There is nothing Christian about it. It is an ideology cloaked effort to divide and disenfranchise and at this very moment in our community to suppress the vote. I met a woman this week who described to me her fears over her personal safety as a poll worker as each night she was being followed to her car by a man in a mask wearing tactical gear. No real interaction, only making his imposing presence in an intimidating way known to her. This ideology is no more Christianity than the Ku Klux Klan would purport it to be. It's simply not Christianity. And frighteningly, this movement, among others, is out there today. Divisive us versus them. But here, here in this space, thanks be to God, love dwells here. Love dwells here. Love dwells here. Love dwells here. And thank God for that. Because we're here together this morning to be fed by the word of God. And so let us take a dive into that beautiful word of God. Up until this moment in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God to his disciples, the religious leaders, random stragglers, tax collectors, and all the various people who make up the crowds who are following him. He's used parables and illustrations. He's healed and forgiven. He's taught and rebuked. And up until now, he's focused on the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the other. So in this context, today's gospel story, a story of a rich man offered salvation, comes as a bit of a surprise. 
After all, in just the previous chapter, Jesus tells the disciples after his conversation with the rich ruler, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This story about Zacchaeus stands, seems to stand in direct contrast to so much of what Jesus has said and done before, which can feel a bit confusing. And so to make sense of it, we often read this as a story about repentance. In last week's gospel, reading about the Pharisee and tax collector at prayer, the tax collector repents, right? He can't even look up to heaven. He beats his breast and cries out to heaven, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Therefore, it's easy to read the story of Zacchaeus as follows. Jesus seeks out Zacchaeus, a notorious rich tax collector. Zacchaeus, overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus, repents of his sin and promises that he will make amends. Acknowledging Zacchaeus' repentance, Jesus declares that salvation has come to his house. And actually, many translations actually guide, actually guide us towards this translation, towards this conclusion. But recall, neither Jesus nor Zacchaeus say anything at all about sin or forgiveness. And as so beautifully reflected upon by the great Kate McDonald Reynolds, why? Why do we so often want to read it that way? What is it in us that longs to see Zacchaeus atone for his greed, his power, his complicity in an unjust government of occupation and oppression. Today's story is an example of how we so often approach our scriptures with our own agenda, our own ideas and judgments about who should repent, who deserves forgiveness, who is already in the fold and who is lost. We want to conform to, we want God to conform to our expectations, to abide by our definitions of justice. Forgiveness can only be preceded by genuine repentance, right? But this is, as all of our gospel stories are, a story about God. This isn't really a story about Zacchaeus. Somehow in our own brokenness and, and shame, I think we turn it into a story about Zacchaeus because it's far easier for us to judge another human being to join in the crowds who name him a sinner than it is for us to consider ourselves worthy and recognize that we are deserving to receive the wider embrace of God's unbounded love. We often focus on that earlier saying of Jesus that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of God. But then, that's not the way that actually ends. We gloss over Jesus' words when he's asked, then who can be saved? His reply, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Steep in the comfort of that for a moment, in its hope, in its faith. This is not a story about repentance, and to read it as such can blind us, blind us to being judgmental. This is a story about the revelation of God's power, the inclusion in the kingdom of God, salvation. We live today in a troubled world. Everywhere we turn, there's conflict and tension, an injustice and division, 
and anger and fear and grief. So how does the story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus become God's word today? How does it invigorate, enlighten, contrast, repudiate, praise what is going on today in our society, in our communities, in our churches, in ourselves? This is the great challenge of the gospel. And it's why we're gathered together this morning. Who is Zacchaeus for us today? Whose views do we disagree with? Who would we not share a table with? Whose lifestyle do we not approve of? And whose manner offends us? Whose actions or words cause us anxiety? Whose work do we despise? And who do we think should repent and beg the most for forgiveness? Whatever names and faces just came to your minds, and believe me, he without sin, I'm not telling you that faces didn't come to my mind in those moments as well. We all need to remember that this isn't a story about Zacchaeus at all. It's a story about God. This isn't a story about repentance, but a story about the revelation of God's power and love, inclusion and salvation. And to put it simply in a more functional way, in the beautiful words of Pastor Nadia Boltzweber, every time we draw a line between us and others, Jesus is on the other side of it. Dear Lord, push far from us the temptation of living into a judgmental life so that the light of righteousness can shine upon the faces around us for the revelation to see the face of Jesus in each other. For remember, my friends, life is short and we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who make the journey with us. So be swift to love and make haste to be kind. And the blessing of Almighty God who made us, who loves us, who travels with us and fills us with peace to serve, be with us now and forever. Amen. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at thechapelofthecross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.